Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we dive into our oceans to find out how some little life is having big impacts. Now when you look at the ocean, you might see some majestic sea mammals like seals, sea otters and dolphins. But the food they eat may contain parasites that have undergone a huge journey just to get there. And these concentrations can have some unusual impacts and play havoc with marine mammal populations. This week, we look at marine mammals and what is giving them some trouble. Now, if you've been enjoying March Mammal Madness, one of the major sports leagues still running, you might also be aware of how cute and interesting some of these animals can be and how the interactions between species can be pretty complex at the best of times. Now take for example one hardy mustelid, such as the sea otter. Now we're going to look at an example of the sea otter. Now sea otters have been known to crop up with some pretty unusual parasites. But what's most fascinating about a type of parasites that have started to infect sea otters along the United States west coast is that they seem to have originated from opossums in Virginia. And this is a paper published by researchers from University of California, Davis in the journal Scientific Reports, that seems to identify how this Sarcosidus neurona has been contributing to a large number of deaths of sea otters, all the way from Vancouver Island in British Columbia down the western coast of North America. Now the question is, how on earth did these sea otters up near Canada, for example in the Vancouver Island of British Columbia, end up with this type of parasite that's normally found on Virginia opossums? That's a long way for a parasite to travel. Now, could this parasite have traveled really long distances in water? Or is there another kind of intermediary host that's spread it along? So the starter point is to always examine spatial patterns or look for ways that the pathogen could be transmitted, either through diet or through the movements of the species across areas. Now, one big thing to consider, of course, is what otters eat. And if there's some way that this pathogen could be transmitted through the food web through another way and travel a large distance. And when you think about something like that, an easy source is, of course, water runoff from land to sea. And this can concentrate and consolidate all kinds of things from chemicals in soils, nitrogen runoff, all the way to, yes, that's right, pathogens and parasites. So to really get a real good grasp on this, they looked at another type of parasite that's related and similar, that's also known to kill sea otters. And this is the Toxoplasma gondii. Now, a long, decade-long study released by a consortium of scientists from UC Davis' School of Veterinary Science and the Department of Fish and Wildlife managed to trace this other parasite, Toxoplasmus, all the way from wild and domestic cats that hung out near watersheds. So that case involved transmission through the food chain, from cats and the parasite carried on cats all the way to the sea otters. So obviously in this case, the sea neurona we know is killing this, the sea otters. This is the original parasite, but it has to come from land. But how this parasite ended up from possums on land out at sea to the sea otters is pretty strange. And it might have to have involved a long and complicated transmission pathway, but probably used the same way that the toxoplasma migrated from cats to sea otters, just with a lot of other intermediary links in that chain. Now, most of the infections these scientists found occurred in California and Washington state, and a large concentration in these states compared to other regions like Alaska or Vancouver, British Columbia. Now, the risk 
factor that meant that more of these otters actually contracted this pathogen was they were normally adult males. They were in human dense habitat. So somewhere with an overlap with wetlands and croplands would have some human interaction rather than really out in the wild. And the wetlands can normally actually help and act as a big filtration mechanism that can filter out all bunch of kinds of dirty chemicals, either absorb them, and also actually sometimes deactivate certain pathogens. But the problem with that is that that wetland could also be home to the opossums, meaning that it's not really that necessarily effective as weeding out the pathogen if the pathogen is being sourced there from the creatures that live inside that environment. Now, areas with soft sediment of like the mouths of a river or an estuary are normally the place where they found a high concentration. And the otters that ate a lot of clams seems to be getting the highest concentration of the parasites. And that suggests that, like with many things, parts of the food chain are acting as concentrator sources where they collect all kinds of parts of a, either a chemical or, in this case, a parasite, a pathogen, and concentrate that into a higher and higher level. So an otter eats one clam that has a few pathogens in it, then they eat another clam that has a few more pathogens in it, and so on and so on. And this is the way in which you can see concentrations of chemicals or pathogens sort of concentrate up the food web. And in this case, it looks like clams are sort of acting as the intermediary vessel. So this really goes to show that the behavior and the health of one species can be incredibly linked to not only the neighboring species, but even species far away. And the food web is incredibly complicated. What happens to one species may have unintended consequences all the way over in a very, very different species. This is some great research from the University of California, Davis, published in the journal Scientific Reports. Now, eating of fish is obviously something that has some element of risk, especially if you're pregnant, because there can often be things like high mercury content in it. And of course, if you choose to dine on the delicacy and incredibly dangerous fugu, the Japanese fish that is often very poisonous and requires extensive practice in order to be able to cut up and serve raw safely, well, this is one of the other things that you might want to add into consideration. Now, this is not to attack Japanese food in any way. Japanese cuisine is one of the many cuisines, including many European ones that serve a form of raw fish. But what researchers from the University of Washington have found is that there's been an increase in the abundance of different types of worms that can be found inside raw fish. And raw fish you might have in things like sashimi, nigiri, or other forms of serving raw fish, which can be quite popular as a delicacy. So the University of Washington set out to look at the population and quantities, really, of different types of worms found in all kinds of fish. And they've been starting to monitor this all the way back to 1970. Now, the reason why they're looking at fish is because, as we spoke about earlier, understanding how one part of the food chain concentrates and aggregates up a type of pathogen, or in this case, a parasite like a worm, can have huge impacts downstream for the rest of the creatures or people that consume that fish. Now, this is especially of concern for time when you eat raw or uncooked fish, because generally we find that cooking a meat like fish or pork can help kill all kinds of worms and parasites living in it. 
But if you eat it raw, you kind of lose that benefit. It's one of the reasons why eating of raw pork is discouraged, whereas eating of a rare steak of beef or lamb isn't so bad, because pork often has other types of parasites in it, and they're less prevalent in beef or lamb. Same thing with fish. So there's been a lot of papers that looked at a particular type of parasitic worm, known as the anisarchus, or herring worm, because it's quite often found in herring. But what this study did was it was a meta-study. It looked at a huge number of different papers over a very long period of time to chart the growth and progression and abundance of these types of parasites. And it was published in the journal Global Change Biology. And one of the major authors was Chelsea Wood, an assistant professor at the University of Washington School of Aquatic and Fish Sciences. She states, it's interesting because it shows how risks to both humans and marine mammals are changing over time. It's important to know from a public health standpoint and from an understanding of what's going on with marine populations that aren't thriving. And that's a good point here, because as we talked about, okay, yes, you may want to have a second thought about eating that sashimi, but it's also important to understand when you see a marine species that's not thriving, is it because their source food is having a parasite inside it, like we talked about with the sea otters. Now, herringworms aren't unique to herring. They can be found in a huge variety of marine fish and squid species. Now, what happens to people when they eat live herringworms is that the parasite can invade the intestinal walls and cause a lot of symptoms that mimic that of food poisoning, such as nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. Now, in most cases, the worm actually dies off after a few days and the symptoms disappear. And that's caused a disease called anisocarsis. Because most of the time, people just assume they had a bad case of food poisoning. But, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's actually caused by a parasite rather than food poisoning. Now, after the worms hatch in the ocean, they can often get into small crustaceans, or the bottom-drilling shrimp or copepods. Then other fish eat those crustaceans. The worms get transferred up, up the food train, and concentrated, like we talked about with the parasites. Now, when humans or marine mammals get infected because they eat the fish that contain the worms, and this process continues. The thing is that the worms can't reproduce or live for more than a few days before our intestines dissolve them. But they can persist and reproduce in some marine mammals, and that can cause them to spread even further. Now, most seafood processors, chefs, or experienced people actually look dealing with raw fish actually can see the worms. In fact, you would probably be able to be as well because they're around two centimeters in length. So unless you're shoving a massive piece of fish in your mouth that's raw without checking, you'll probably be okay. You're not gonna unsuspectingly eat this parasite. It's easy for a human to tell on a nicely prepared and cut and filleted piece of fish. But for a dolphin or a sea otter or another creature, a marine mammal that's eaten a fish or a crustacean that has this parasite in them, it's much harder for them to do that detailed inspection that you might do when your sushi or sashimi is beautifully plated in front of you. Now for the species that eat these parasite infected lower down species like the crustaceans or the fish, this can lead to problems as they concentrate and aggregate up these parasites, which can lead to surprising drop-offs or unexplained drop-offs in the populations of these sea otters, dolphins, or you name it. So it's really quite important to understand the impact of these parasitic worms. Now, this meta-study aspect of this looked at the abundance of these parasitic worms from all the way back from 1978 through to 2015. And they found in the Anisakis worms a 283 times increase in the number 
of this worms. By comparison, a different type of worm, the Pseudoterra nova worms, didn't basically change in their population dynamic. So the Anasarcus worms are actually thriving, but the Pseudoterra nova worms aren't over the same period. So it's good to have a comparative measure. It's not just that our screening is getting better, it's actually that something is happening in these parasitic worm populations. Now, obviously, for a human, the risk from these worms is relatively low. A few bouts of, of course, intense what feels like food poisoning, but that's it. The worm can't survive in a human. But for some marine mammals like dolphins, whales and seals, these worms can actually reproduce inside the intestines and then released back into the ocean through the feces. And that can have a big problem on the populations. So an important part to track and understand these parasites is to understand how they can have impacts on other species that we're looking to conserve. And a lot of the time in conservation, you can think that you're isolating a particular species from one dangerous source. Maybe it's overfishing, maybe it's crowded waterways. So you create a nice nature reserve to allow the dolphins or the seals to be protected. But there might be other risks to them that are already there in the population that you can't see that may lead to population drops. And that's really what this research is trying to highlight. It's possible, as Professor Wood points out, that recovery of some marine mammal populations has actually allowed the recovery of this particular parasite. So it could be a sign of an ecosystem doing well. But the problem is it's a complicated chain, right? So as soon as one marine population increases in response to protections, you might see the fact that, well, you made a nice nature park for those dolphins and seals, so they're protected when, correspondingly, the parasite also does well in that area. So it's something that you have to look at and understand a more complete picture, which is especially important as people try to manage endangered populations to make sure they have the best chance of recovery. This is some great research from the University of Washington published in the journal Global Change Biology, including lead researchers such as Evan Fiorenza and Katrin Wendt, along with Associate Professor Chelsea Wood. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From possum parasites playing havoc with sea otters, all the way to how parasitic worms are causing problems for all kinds of marine mammals in conservation as well. This week we looked at parasites in the sea. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia. <laughs>